Okay, now, now we're going to head into Matthew chapter 6, and um, we're going to continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, last week, you guys had a little break from me. I'm sure it was, it was nice. Um, Pastor Matt came from Park Place and, um, and shared um, and complained probably the whole time that I only gave him three verses, and, and, and he sure complained about that to me, but it sounds like he did a great job with it. This week, we're going to start a new portion of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to read it first, and then we'll talk about it. Matthew 6, 19 through 24 says this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your hearts will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and will despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I was thinking this week as I was reading through this passage and looking at this whole next portion of the Sermon on the Mount that is summed up by the next few weeks where Jesus talks about a couple of different topics. And I was thinking about this in light of the idea of addiction. Uh, because if you know someone who's been addicted to something, who's had a real addiction problem, whether it's a chemical, physical addiction, or an emotional addiction, or some other kind of addiction, you probably know that the nature of addiction is such that it takes the ideas of freedom and the ideas of oppression, and it, and it, and it reverses them, oftentimes. Then you might see someone in your life whose life is being destroyed by something that they're addicted to. And out of love for that person, you might come to them and you might say, you don't need this thing. In fact, you should be free from this thing. In fact, you should take every step possible to not, be, not engage in this thing. Because, because it's killing you and it's oppressing you and I want you to have freedom. But the nature of addiction is such that many who hear those very words from the people they love will not see it as freedom will not see it as love, will not see it as help, but will instead say, what you're telling me is what feels like oppression. It's what feels like control, and I don't like it. In fact, as a, as a free person, I ought to have the ability and the right to be able to do the things that I want to do in moderation, which is what most struggling would say even. Just some, just a little bit, every once in a while or whatever. I can handle it, I can do it, I promise that I'll try as hard as I can. And those who love will often say, no, you can't. You just need to give it up, right? The reason I bring that up is because as we look at these next few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins saying, do not, to his disciples. He begins saying, don't. And actually, in a sermon on discipleship, he hasn't said that a whole lot. He hasn't just started out things by saying, don't do this, don't do this. And when Jesus says those things, believe it or not, some people feel a little bit oppressed. They feel a little bit like Jesus might be trying to control them and be some authority in their life and say, live this way, not this way. And so we rebel against those very words, do not, that Jesus gives. But that's not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is that as a follower of mine, you can have freedom. You can have freedom, he says this week, from money and stuff. Next week, he says you can have freedom from fear and from anxiety. And after that, he says you can have freedom from judgment. You can actually not be a judgmental person. 
Now, he says these things to his disciples because if you're a follower of Jesus, the good news is that you actually can be free from these things that so many other people struggle with. But most don't see it as freedom. Most don't hear those words and feel relief. Most of us don't see this, this passage and this teaching of Jesus and feel relieved by it. Like the shackles have been taken off. We instead feel like someone's trying to tell us what to do. That someone's saying, don't do this, don't do that, live a certain way, don't live a certain way. And as a result, we feel oppressed. No one wants to be materialistic, fearful, and judgmental. I've never talked to someone who says like, um, uh, what do you love most about your spouse? And they say, you know, they're just so materialistic, fearful, and judgmental. And I really love that about them. It's really brought about a lot of good things, you know? I've seen God use it a lot, right? No one wants to be materialistic, fearful, and judgmental. And yet, I think when we're honest, we could admit that many people would characterize the American church as, oftentimes, materialistic, fearful, and judgmental. And so what does that tell us? Now, I'm not saying I think our church is like uniquely that way or that we suffer big time from those things, but what that tells us, what we see around us from many people who would call themselves followers of Jesus who still seem very materialistic and very uh, fearful and very judgmental is this, that you can hear these words of Jesus and you can want to be a follower of Jesus and you can still not find freedom in what he's saying. And that's important. But even though he's saying this is freedom, that many won't feel that way and will simply feel like they need it instead. They need those things. The very things that we're the most addicted to. This would be good news for us, but it would be hard news if we were addicted to any of these things. If we found ourselves so hopelessly needing stuff, fear, the ability to value ourselves by judging other people in some way, then these would be much harder to hear, but they'd be all the more important for us to receive. So this is the beginning of what he talks about that we're gonna look at this week. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This last week, um, I was on a date with Ellie, and I was just skipping through Portland, and I skipped right over a puddle, and my phone flew out of my pocket, and it broke. And the screen broke, and I was very devastated by it. I'm, like, embarrassed to admit how much of our anniversary date I was, like, you know, stressed about my phone not working. Um, and, oh man, this is gonna cost a bunch of money and all this stuff. So I went home with my phone and I was like, all right, I'm gonna try to make an appointment, figure out how to get my screen fixed. And in the meantime, I dug out the old, old iPhone and uh, the backup, backup, backup iPhone. And I went and got that and I plugged it in uh, with the old adapter because it's changed eight times. And I put my stuff on it and it barely even worked. And I was like, this passage should say like that moth destroy and that rust destroy and that Apple updates to death. Because basically, I broke something very valuable, and then the one that I hadn't broken and had taken care of still doesn't work. Because over time, it just doesn't even work, apparently. Because, you know, it's too slow now with all the stuff we have. 
I have a love-hate relationship with Apple. I'm not trying to say anything bad about Apple, but I am trying to say that maybe the foolish person is the one who continues to invest in these things, knowing that when you take care of them, they still won't work, and when you drop them, they're gonna cost a lot of money, and yet I continue to spend money on these things. Stuff is, uh, it rots. It fades away. It doesn't last forever. Whether you take care of it or not, whether it gets broken or not, whether it gets stolen or not, it doesn't last. And this is what Jesus begins by telling them. He's reminding them of something that everybody kind of knows is true. But he's also talking about the idea of abundance of stuff. Because what are the things that get eaten by moths? The things you put in the closet and just sit there for a long time. What are the things that rust are the things that sit there that maybe you didn't even need? I once, before we were married, I bought a, a, like a pop-up tent trailer because I was, I was foolish and I thought that what we would want to do with babies is go camping. Because we had done it before because we were bored, I guess, and we were like, we need something to do that's work, so let's go camping, right? And we loved it, and we would go camping all the time and do all the work. It took so much work to do anything, but I don't know, that was fun. And then we had little kids, and it was like, yeah, we'll want to take them, so if I'll get this pop-up thing, then we'll take them, because it'll be easier. And, uh, and I didn't know what I was doing when I bought it, and so it was all rusted out on the bottom. I didn't even look underneath. I didn't know. Um, and so I spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to fix it, and then it just sat there in one half of my garage, inside my garage, covered up by like a tarp or something for a few years. I never once took it out. And by the time I sold it, this whole idea of like, it'll be great. It'll give us time together as a family. It'll save us money in the end. I'm sure no one's ever thought this before, right? It'll save us money in the long run, right? From hotels, because yeah, we do that, right? We go out all the time and just stay in hotels. Not really. By the time I sold it, I had lost money on it. And all the time that I thought I was going to save for us as a family to be together, I just spent on working on this thing, trying to get it like to actually work, right? I mean, stuff, especially stuff that we don't really totally need to live, to survive, to get by on a day-to-day level, consumes a lot of us. It consumes a lot of our time, a lot of our heart, and ultimately, it goes away. It breaks down. It loses its, it loses its, its, its fun. It loses its value, and it ultimately loses its utility. It doesn't work. At the time when Jesus is saying this to people, there were not banks. So apart from the things that you amassed because you liked having them, the only way that you really kept wealth was by having it in things. You could have it in land. Land didn't really get stolen, but not a lot of the people that Jesus was talking to at the time had land. Uh, You could get it in like animals. That's why when you read about um, people in the Old Testament being wealthy, you hear like these insane numbers of like slaves and animals and servants and all this stuff and land, right? Because that's how they had their wealth is in those things. Um, So when Job loses everything, he loses a lot of that stuff because he loses his wealth. But at the time, the way that people would save money was by having it in things. You'd have precious jewels and valuables. You'd have things that were worth a lot of money and that's what your money was tied up in. And sometimes you'd bury it somewhere and just try to like keep it, you know? That's why in one of the parables that Jesus talks about, he talks about burying something valuable because that's what people did. This is why when you read the account of the woman who washes Jesus' feet, who's a very poor woman, and you go, this sounds a little bit weird to me that this really poor person has a bottle of perfume that's worth a year's wages. How does that even work? Talk about bad priorities and buying stuff and saving things in your house, right? Like, oh yeah, my house is totally a dump and I have no food and I'm really poor, but that bottle of perfume over there, don't even get me started on that bottle of perfume, right? In reality, that bottle of perfume was either an heirloom that's handed down by her family, which is their way of handing down inheritance, or it's her way of having any amount of money that she can save. 
which makes it even more of a big deal when she uses it on Jesus, right? When she breaks it open and she uses it to wash Jesus' feet. But this was how people had their money tied up in things. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, even the tying up of your money in things, the saving of your money, even people can come in and they can steal and they can take those things. And as much as we would like to say that we now have very guaranteed ways of saving money, uh, we don't, right? There is no guaranteed perfect way of putting your money away somewhere and knowing it's going to be there at the end of the day. So Jesus is talking about this idea of amassing things, and he's, and he's talking, it sounds at first, kind of like the idea of simplifying, right? Hey, don't have too much stuff. Let it go. Do a clean out. Do a purge, right? Simplify. I have a friend who's listening to this podcast on, like, I don't know, like simplifying or, or you know, getting rid of stuff. And, uh, and they said, uh, and they said, uh, I, need, I'm buying, I need to buy white hotel towels. That's one of the steps, is you get rid of all your towels and you buy white hotel towels. And, which, you know, when you think about it, that would be pretty, like, maybe, like, emotionally peaceful, right? If you, like, open up your cupboard and it's just nothing but one kind of something and you go, okay, all right, it's all the same, I guess. The only problem with that, I don't know if any of you are seeing this here, but, uh, but I, I certainly do, is that in order to simplify, you have to go buy all new towels and then throw out all your old towels and it ends up costing more money and creating more stuff, right? We really resonate with the idea in certain seasons of life of like getting rid and being simple. Some, but the problem and why that often never lasts, why that really never lasts, I think, is because we spend the same amount of money on ourselves at the end of the day. We still, we still end up spending as much on me. We just do it in different ways. In fact, some of us will get rid of a lot of cheap things and buy a few expensive things, and that's our way of doing it. But it's the same amount of money, and it's being tied up in the same sort of way. And Jesus is saying, ultimately, it's going to fail you in the same way. But we know what this is like. We know what this is like to care and to spend and to build because, you know, we have these things and we want to live comfortable lives. I was reading a book this last week on the Revolutionary War and uh, the author, David McCullough, was talking about George Washington. And, uh, you know, he was like, obviously, as a general of, the, of our armies, he had a huge, he had a huge role in, in the success of the war. And he was, he was hired to come and to lead the troops. And when he got there, he was incredibly disappointed with what he saw and spent a long time trying to turn this into an army. And it was these long days. And he often would write letters to his friends and say, I would not have taken this if I had known, right? If I had known what it was like, that it was this bad. Because it was so exhausting to him and it was so difficult to him. And he would go home every night and he would write instructions to a guy back at his house in Mount Vernon on his house remodel. Every night, he wouldn't go to sleep. He would go home and he would write down instructions because uh, George Washington was really into this house remodel that he was doing. He was really into every little detail of it. I wanna read you a quote from this book that the author writes. He says, he cared intensely about every detail, wallpaper, paint color, ceiling ornaments, and insisted on perfection. With all that weighed on his mind, he worried things were not being done as he wished. He filled pages of instructions for his manager every night. And then this is one of the things he wrote. I wish you would quicken the carpenters about the dining room chimney piece to be executed as mentioned in one of my last letters as I could wish to have that end of the house finished upon my return. I wish you would have the new kitchen next to the garden done as also the old kitchen with rusticated boards. It's good to know that things still, you know. However, as it is not... I would have the corners done so as was done with our new church. And he goes on and on and on with every detail of the landscaping and the fixtures and the walls and the architecture and all of it. 
And I find like a certain amount of this sort of amusing because this is truly how America began, was with us fighting a revolutionary war and kind of remodeling a house at the same time, right? Because that's what he did. And it's a beautiful house. You can go see it to this day. And this speaks to the fact that we actually live in a place and in a time where we experience more wealth than most people have ever experienced on planet Earth and will probably ever experience again. In terms of the number of people who have lived on this planet, we live and get to live our lives as a part of a small group that experiences great comfort and wealth. And that's a part of just sort of the life that we have. It's all for many of us that we've ever known. And Jesus' response to this stuff is, what a waste, is what he says. He says, you're going to regret it. That's what he says in these first couple verses. He says, I want to make it clear, disciples, you're not going to get a return on your investment. You're not going to get satisfaction from this like you think you will. And he's being very clear about that with them. And he says something at the very end here. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is why we won't get the return on it that we think. That's a bold statement to make. Your heart is there as well. You see, this isn't a prohibition about having stuff. This isn't about being wealthy. This is a prohibition about where your heart belongs. This is Jesus doing that thing that Jesus always does that has to make everything so complicated, which is saying, let's talk again about your heart. Let's talk again about what is driving you. Because if you're going to follow me as a disciple, that is what will matter. Not just the way that you live, but what is driving you internally at your core, what your heart is doing. What are you really seeking? And you hear this and it's like, Jesus... Like, ease up, right? You could have a lot more people following you. You would be more popular for sure if you would just stop complicating it so much by stopping it all the time and saying, hang on a second, check your motive, think about your heart, what's really driving this thing? But he does it again and again and again because that's what's most important to him that he knows. He knows the way that people work. I, I think there's, there are a few parts of scripture that have so much wisdom packed into them as this proverb, Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the streams of life. This word heart that Jesus is using here means the center of your being. He's not just talking about what pumps your blood. It's the center of who you are. And, and this proverb says, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the streams of life. It makes this analogy of a river stream that has a source and it flows down. And whatever goes into the source of that stream is going to pollute it all the way down ultimately. In the NIV, it says it this way. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything else flows from it. And in the King James, I think it says it, even, it, says it the best. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You want to know where the issues are coming from? Do you want to know where your issues are coming from and the world's issues are coming from? It's simple. Hearts. They're coming from your heart. They're coming from everyone else's heart. So if you want to deal with something, and if you want to follow Jesus, then you start at the heart. That's where all the issues of life are going to flow out of. So what do you do? You protect it. You guard it. You keep it. You think about it. You ask questions about it. And this is a hard thing for us to do. Because I don't know what's in your heart. I can only seek to understand what's in my heart. To know what's going on there. I want to ask you some questions. Think about these things. What occupies your thoughts the most? 
You used to be able to say when you had nothing to do, but we kind of don't live in that place anymore, really. We all have phones, and so we always have something to do. Uh, one pastor used to say, you know, when you stand at the bus stop, because we're always standing at bus stops and nothing to do now, what, what would come to your mind? What would come to your thoughts? But what occupies your thoughts most of the time? What brings you joy and what brings you happiness? Not, not just what you want to bring you joy and happiness, what you hope would bring you joy and happiness, but what actually makes you really happy when it happens and when you experience it? What do you stress and worry about the most? What are you most afraid of losing? Now, I think all of us would agree unanimously that we're most afraid of losing the people who are the most important to us in our lives. So if you took that answer and you set that aside that we all agree on, what's next? What are you most afraid of losing? And what do you judge and measure other people by? Or yourself? When you classify and judge people, when you decide who's valuable and who's not, what's important and what's not, if you yourself are worthwhile and valuable or not, how, what do you judge that based upon? All of these things speak to what's going on in our heart. And Jesus goes on to say this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This seems a little bit random at first. Why would Jesus go from some you know, great talk about the heart and about money to all of a sudden talking about light and darkness? And what he's doing here is he's explaining something that is incredibly crucial for understanding why this is such a big deal and why he chose this as something to talk to his disciples about. This is essentially a warning within the warning. This is like the deep down warning. Now he's grabbing you by the shoulders and he's shaking you and he's looking in the eye and he's saying, listen to this, hear this. Don't be in darkness. He's not saying don't be in decay or don't be in death. He's saying don't be in ignorance. Think about it this way. If everyone here closed their eyes, then you wouldn't have any light anymore. All the visual things that there are to take in and see in the world, all the light that there is with the lights in this room or if you go outside, all you have to do is close your eyes. No more light. So if your eyes aren't working, if your eyes aren't seeing, then you in a sense are living in darkness. Your nose isn't gonna see it, your mouth isn't gonna see it, no, your skin's not gonna pick up the light in that way. Your whole being is experiencing darkness just because your eyes are closed, because you can't see. Why is he saying this? Why say this about money? Because he's saying this. He's saying greed. Well, another place in which he talks about this is, is Luke 12. Jesus talks about light and darkness in the same way in your eyes. And in Luke 12, he says this. He says, right alongside it, he says, so watch out for all kinds of greed. Why would Jesus warn us about ignorance and greed. And here's why. It's simple. Because greed is something that none of us see. We don't see it. We are blind to greed. You can commit adultery and you will know I'm committing adultery. I committed adultery. But you don't do that with greed. And the reason we don't do it is because it's so easy to find any other person and point to them and say, that's greedy, right? Every one of us, we can find someone in our family and our friends and our church in a small group that we're in, or one of our neighbors, a coworker. We can pretty easily point to a person and say, greedy. 
But I'm not greedy. That's greedy. Materialism has the ability to blind us to materialism. Greed blinds us from greed. And he's saying this about this specific thing because it is so, it's so hard to nail down in our lives. It's so hard to see in our lives. It is so hard to own up to and confess to. In all of my years as a pastor, I have never once had a person tell me I really struggle with greed. I have had people tell me they struggle with almost everything else, but I've not had someone to say I struggle with greed. And I think that's partly because we know that once those words come out, then you can't take them back. It would be like saying to somebody in conversation casually, I've got a real drinking problem. And then like a week later, they're like, how's that drinking problem? Being like, oh no, that wasn't, that wasn't, no, I don't, never mind. Just forget about that, right? You wouldn't really, hopefully if you're a good friend, don't forget about that, okay? Don't forget that they said that to you. You shouldn't forget about that because they said it and it means something. And I think for a lot of us, it's like, if we do see it in ourselves, we're like, well, I don't really know if I'm ready to say that to anybody because then I'm kind of stuck. Then that means I probably have to do something different. I have to make some kind of a change. But most of us just don't even see it. We're blind to it. It's one of the ones that we never want to own up to. I think this is really true. I, I really do think that greed, more than almost anything else, we just don't see it in our own lives. We don't see it in ourselves, we don't see it in our own hearts because we can see it in other people and it's also because we live at a time and in a place where it's very easy to be greedy every day, all the time and not even think that you're greedy. So he, this is the warning. He's saying, see it. Look at your heart, look at your life, see what's going on there. Please see it. No one else is going to point it out to you probably. You have to see it. And he goes on and he says this, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is making a major distinction here. Jesus is saying here, he's saying here something that he doesn't really say about a lot of other things. He's saying this goes one way and that goes the other way. God leads one way, money leads another way. If you serve money, you will be moving further away from God. If you serve God, it will move you further away from materialism and materialistic things. That's what he's saying. They are mutually exclusive of each other. It's like being married to someone and then trying to be married to someone else at the same time. It doesn't work because the very nature of marriage is that it is a mutually exclusive devotion. Now, you can have kids and, and, and love them. You can have friends and love them, multiple people. You can, have, you can have people in your life, in your family, and you can love them all, and they're hopefully not gonna be like, come on, you gotta love one more. Kids will probably say that, but nobody else will say that. Even the idea of like having best friends, you realize once you get beyond a certain age that that's a little bit of a hard thing to nail down. But there are certain relationships and there are certain things in life that by nature are mutually exclusive of other things. So if I get married and if I fall in love and I get married and I devote myself to my wife for the rest of my life, then that means that I cannot devote myself to anyone else. If I do, it moves me away. It will always lead, always lead in a different direction. And Jesus is saying something here about 
money and about materialism and about amassing things that he doesn't say, I mean, he's not saying, he's not using the same language to talk about lust, to talk about anger, to talk about a lot of other things that we would see and say, those seem like pretty major things to Jesus. But why is he doubling down so much on this, on stuff, on caring about stuff? Why is he going so far as to say that it will, be, it will cause you to serve something other than God? That you can't serve God and serve money. Why those two things together? And it's this. It's what money is and what money does. There's two things that money gives us. One of them is it gives us significance. Money gives us a sense of value. I feel better about myself because I have more money than that person. I feel better about this person myself compared to my family, compared to my friends, compared to other countries or other groups of people because I have more. But for most people that I know, I I know some people, I think some of us struggle with that, but I think the overwhelming majority of us, the reason why Jesus is saying this to you is because money buys you security. Money buys you security. It buys you the ability to stop worrying about everything. You think, who is God ultimately? He is a provider to us. He creates us, he provides for us, he cares for us. And what does he say to us in his word again and again and again? He says, trust me, trust me, trust me. And ultimately, if we just could amass enough, if we could get enough and save enough and earn enough, we'll be okay. We won't need God. We won't need anyone or anything to depend on. We can just enjoy things with freedom because we've got it all. Or the the enjoyment that comes from it. God creates us, and in the Garden of Eden, he wants to be our source of joy, and he wants to be the provider. And what do Adam and Eve say? They say, God's holding out on us. We can't trust God. We need to provide for ourselves. We need to make different choices. This is the reason why Jesus is saying you can only serve one or the other. You're either going to depend on God or you're going to depend on stuff. You're either going to take joy and satisfaction from God, or you're going to take it in stuff. But if you take it in stuff, you're going to take it less from God. If your security is ultimately wrapped up in this stuff, then your security will not ultimately be in your Father. And as much as we want to think that the solution to this is balance, that's why Jesus is saying these verses. He's saying the answer is not balance. The answer is not, Jesus is pretty good. He's got some pretty good teachings. I kind of like what he has to say. It really resonates with me. You know, simplify your life, kind of get rid of the junk, kind of take, take some time to just sort of live that way and maybe purge all the stuff that you don't need. Jesus isn't saying that. You don't get to just take some of this teaching and, and then not take the other because it doesn't really work that way. He's saying balance isn't the solution. The solution is saying Either I'm going to serve God or I'm going to serve money, stuff, the physical, material things that bring me comfort, security, and joy. But I have to pick one or the other. And I have to turn away from one or the other because of that choice that I make. So what do you do? If you want to serve God, if you want to choose God, what do you do? Well, he says we are to, instead of storing up treasures on earth, where moth, where moth, where rust, where apple updates and everything destroy, 
He says we're supposed to store up treasures in heaven, right? Paul writes this to Timothy in 1 Timothy. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. I think Paul's pretty effectively communicating that he understands Jesus' teaching here. And he's talking to Timothy about it. He's reiterating it to him, saying, hey, I've been around the church now for a little while too. I've gotten to hang out with these Christians. I've gotten to watch rich people wrestle with the gospel. And I've seen a unique challenge that comes with the more money you have and the more stuff you have, the greater likelihood that you'll struggle with this thing. And so don't kind of get tripped up in this way and don't let the people of your church get tripped up in this way. So the advice he gives Timothy is this, a few verses later. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He says this, do good works and give it away. Be generous and ready to share. And as you let it go, you are somehow storing up treasures in heaven. That is a good investment, apparently. That's the guaranteed investment, apparently. The solution is to treasure the right things. Our God treasures us. Jesus treasures us. We are to do the same. We are to treasure them. What's difficult about this teaching that Paul gives to Timothy, yes, it applies to rich people, but I mentioned this before. Everyone in this room qualifies as being rich according to the standard that we read about in Scripture. We have more than enough. So it applies to us. None of us are probably going to go home and wonder where next Sunday's meal is going to come from, how we'll be warm in the cold. And so with that abundance that we have, what do we do with it? And that's Paul's instruction to Timothy. There's a, uh, I was reading a quote um, by a, an NBA coach, coach of the Spurs, Greg Popovich. He uh, has made a lot of money and has given a, given a lot of his money away. And when someone asked him from ESPN Magazine, I think they asked him in December was when this interview was, they said, why do you give so much money away? I think he summed it up pretty well. And I edited this because of language. Uh, Because we're rich, he feels very passionate about it. Because we're rich as heck, we'll say that. Because we're rich as heck, and we don't need it all, and other people need it. Then, you're a jerk if you don't give it. Pretty simple. I thought that summed it up pretty well in some ways. He said, listen, it's not that hard. And I don't think he's condoning communism or anything like that. He's saying, listen, I make a whole lot of money way more than I need. And there's a whole lot of people who can't even eat. And if I don't give them some of that money and help take care of them, I'm a jerk. That's what he says. He doesn't say that word. (laughs) And Paul says the same thing to Timothy. 
He says, give it away. Jesus says the same thing to his disciples. It's a sacrifice. Not laying up treasures in heaven or on earth, but in heaven ultimately means be sacrificial with the way that we live. When Jesus talks about giving, he doesn't talk about giving a fair, healthy amount so that you can feel good at the end of the day and you know that you did something good. That's balance. He's not talking about figuring out just the right percentage and number and then never thinking about it again. That's balance. He's saying live and give sacrificially. When I was growing up, we lived right around the corner from my grandparents. They, were, uh, they, were, they, were, they grew up in the Depression, so you know where the story's going. They uh, were incredibly good with saving money and being frugal. My grandma reused tea bags. She had a little dish on her windowsill where she would put the tea bag, because you know, you can get another cup out of that, right? She had gone to some math class when she was a kid where they teach you how to calculate how much electricity costs when you do things. So you turn on a light switch, 10 cents. So she'd always say, open up the fridge. That was 10 cents. You already knew what was in there. Close it, you know? Like always with that, right? She seemed to know how much everything costs to do. They lived, in a, they lived in not a very fancy house in a pretty normal neighborhood where they had raised six daughters. Um, they drove like... Like a, like a Lincoln Town Car that was like 15 years old that they usually kept covered in the garage and there was less paperwork all over. I remember because they took it out. It was a really big deal when they were driving anywhere. My grandparents were incredibly frugal and I was surprised. And, and actually, a lot of my friends' grandparents um, had very nice houses and, uh, and spent all their retirement years really just traveling and vacationing and doing some really nice things. And, and I remember thinking, like, I guess my family's just not like that. That's fine. Then my grandparents passed away. And then it turned out my grandparents were incredibly wealthy, that they had saved so much money and that they had lived that way partly so that they could save and save and save. And then that money went to their family. And the reason I bring that up is, uh, is because, I, not, not because I think we can all, we all should be trying to live exactly that way, but it's because my grandparents, when that moment came, I realized they could have lived here and they chose to live here for some reason. They could have lived in this house, but they chose this house for some reason. They could have driven this car, but they chose this car for some reason. They could have gone on that vacation, but they, well, they probably didn't vacation also because they just thought it was a bother. They use that word a lot, but they could have vacation and they chose not to vacation for whatever reason. For some reason, they said, I could live up here, but I'm going to live down here and I'm going to choose to. And I'm not going to tell everybody about it. it was the other crazy thing because I didn't know. What Jesus is telling his disciples to do is that as his followers, that to be a disciple, to actually serve God and not money, means to give it away sacrificially. To give of your time, to give of your talents, to give of your treasure. But he's specifically talking about treasure here. And to give it in a way that someone should look at your life and say, wait, you make this much, you should live like this. But will you live like this? Why? Because all of that goes away. And we don't just give it away to give it away. We don't just give to people so we'll look good because that's not what he says to do. And Jesus just finished talking about how when we do things for the wrong motives, we're just building up our own kingdom again, our own treasure. What he says is you get treasure in heaven, which means you invest it in God's kingdom. You do it in God's name. You do it in a way that brings him glory. It's like if I gave you $1,000 and said, spend it the way that person would want it spent. That's what we do. Christians willingly, even joyfully choose to live below their means. 
They don't invest their money in things that won't last. They don't accumulate stuff just for the sake of accumulating and for the security that comes from it. They let it go. And when they give, they do so in Jesus' name. You say, how do I think this could increase God's kingdom, bring him glory? How would this be something? What would Jesus want to do? What would Jesus do if he had my bank account? If he had my things? For practicality's sake, here's the thing. We don't make the biggest decisions about our money, like right here on a Sunday morning, as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount together. We make the biggest decisions, the one that make the biggest impact on our lives, when we make the big decisions. When we buy a car and buy a house and decide the tuition payment, when we decide our budget, when we decide all these things. And please hear me on this. I'm not saying that Jesus is condemning having things, because he's not. He's talking about the hearts of people, and he's also talking about how much of their lives they're giving to those things. And I will say this, that just as much as I have never had a single person come to me and say, I struggle with greed, I have, had, I have watched so many people absolutely give their lives to having and maintaining stuff, like their whole lives to it. It's their pastime, it's their pleasure, it's their hobby, it's everything that they do. All the time, not just for one season, because it starts with one season, and then it's another, and then another, and then another, and the next thing you know, that's what we do with what we have, and that ends up being where our life goes. The fact of the matter is that followers of Jesus are not to be the ones who are caught in the trap of stuff, of money, of these things in this way. They are to be the ones who are freed from it, and I'll tell you why, and this is the best news of all. Because who is our God? Our God is a God who is a giver. He has given us life. And then when we chose death, he gave us life again. And he gave us the greatest thing that he could ever give us, which is his son. And so Jesus is a sacrificer for us. And our father is a giver for us. And so what does that make us is rich. We are loaded we are a room full of wealthy, rich, disgustingly rich, loaded people right now. We have more than we could ever need and, and, and deserve, more than we could ever deserve. And so we get to live our lives like the richest people on earth. And what do people who are wealthy, and that wealth comes from a God who is a giver and who sacrifices, what do we do with that? We then give and we sacrifice because that is the God that we serve and that is his heart. We do it joyfully. We do it knowing that it actually brings life and freedom. Knowing that every step we take in trying to build God's kingdom, it is a step towards freedom for us from building our own kingdom. And we know that even if that step hurts, that it is a step towards freedom. And that's something that we can take joy in. Let's pray. Father, I, um, I cannot think of the words to express how generous you have been with us. 
that in truth, when we hear the teachings of Jesus on money and on the stuff that we have, it's easy to often feel like you just want us to do hard things, that you want us to do things that kind of disappoint us and make us feel exasperated. But that is a, that is a loss of the perspective over where we really stand with you, God. You are an abundantly generous God who has given us so much, and it's because of that that we can give, that we can live differently, that we can act differently, that we can handle things differently. And so, Father, our prayer is that knowing you offer us this freedom, knowing that it is there for those who follow you, our prayer is that we would have the courage to just look at our hearts and to just ask ourselves, how much do we care about this stuff? Do we need this stuff? And our prayer is that we could let it go to you, that we could find freedom in that, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Father, as we pray that, as we sing that, we know that there are two ways we could approach you. With the words that we just sung, in recognition that you've given us more than we could ever deserve, than we could ever have even asked for. Or we could approach you expecting from you, feeling like you, have, you haven't given us enough, that you haven't done enough for us, Lord. And the fact is many of us feel one way, many of us feel the other, Lord. In our prayer this morning, knowing how hard it is to see the, the way that uh, the desire and the need for things in this world can take hold in our hearts and hold us slave and captive to them, knowing how hard that is to see, our prayer is that you would give us eyes to see, Lord. Where our hearts are at, what we truly need, what we truly want, what gives us joy, and where our heart is directed, Lord. Our desires, what we want, Lord, is for our hearts to be pure and to protect them. Because we know that if that's the truth, that everything that flows out of our hearts will be good, Lord, that it will be honoring and pleasing to you. So that is our prayer, that, that we would see our own hearts, Lord, that we would lift them up to you, that you would heal them if necessary. And God, we are so grateful for who you are and what you've done for us, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.